This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Take a deep breath. Relax. Inhale through your nose. And exhale through your mouth. Sit back and close your eyes. Gradually release the tension, starting from your toes, working up your legs to your pelvis, and from your fingertips, slowly up your arms to your shoulders. The Stacking Benjamins Show, no matter how bad it gets, is your favorite podcast. I will count backwards from three, and when I snap my fingers... You'll be overcome with delight at hearing the start of this episode. Three, two, one. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and is anyone else ready for a bonus? Today, we'll talk to a man helping you get ready for a more financially savvy life. Financial planner, Brian Ursu. You know, I need to listen in because I was very clearly promised that my company charge cards limit would be raised from $5 to $10 a month. Time for me to be super savvy. Plus, Intuit, the maker of TurboTax, is buying Credit Karma. What does that mean for fintech in general and for you as a consumer? We'll ask Ryan Falvey from Financial Venture Studio. And later, during our Haven Lifeline, we'll give Jose some advice on how to get less cash back from his refund and more cash in his paycheck. And don't you worry, we'll also save time for my trivia. 
And now, two guys who are all ready to help us kick off a new work week. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. We are ready. And Spring break week. What's up? It is What's up? Mai Tais for breakfast. For the whole family? Everybody. It helps keep everybody calm. Welcome to Reasons Child Protective Services gets called. My name is Joe Salci. I average your money on Twitter and across the card table from me. Guy spent one of the last days with his kids, Mr. OG. Hiccup. <laughs> that is that is not good. That is no, not good parenting. That. Don't feed your kid Mai Tais. Do not Virgin do Mai Tais. You can do Virgin Mai Tais. I don't even think that's good. Just sends a bad no. symbol. If you got your six-year-old with a drink with umbrella in it. Have you seen the commercial where the dude's getting a ticket for parking in the no parking spot? And he's like slugging a beer. And the cop looks at him and he like kind of rotates the label and it's the, you know, Heineken near beer. Would you ever think of just like grabbing a beer to drink in your car that's non-alcoholic? No. I don't, not debate the yeah. whole like, well, no. some people like, you know, can't have alcohol or whatever. Like no. I get that. But like out of all of the drinks you could have on a hot summer day. No. Sitting in your convertible on the beach. No. You're going to grab a near beer and slug it. Like how about... <laughs> I'm either drinking beer coke. or like a lemonade. Water. Yes. I know. Water, lemonade, a fruit juice. Yeah. You know. Just not for me. Might be good for some people that like the taste. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's. That's maybe all that's why. It. That's exactly why everybody drinks beer. Because of the taste. Because of the taste. <laughs> you know what I like the taste the of? taste of the 12th one. I, I, I like the taste of excellently prepared food, which is why I love Masterclass. Because you learn so much about food, negotiating, directing movies, managing people, whatever it is that you want to be a master in. Big thanks to Masterclass for supporting Stacky Benjamins. You'll find hundreds of video lessons from today's most brilliant minds available anytime, anywhere on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire TV. You'll get 15% off your annual all-access pass stackers. Go to Masterclass dot com slash stacking that's masterclass.com slash stacking for 15 percent off masterclass by the way there's a class there by bob Iger. bob Iger a couple weeks yes, ago just correct. stepped down effective now how about that yes. i'm done he had a great interview with tim ferris if you didn't listen to it it's awesome tim has done a really good job i think of like getting really good at interviewing you know his first you know, oh, 100 episodes kind of like ours we're just Dog crap. Our first 800 and, um, episodes, you mean? Were dog said. crap? Just the first 100. No, I said the our other. first 800. Oh, 800. Yes. It was 100 for oh. Tim, our first 800. Kind of not yeah, that. Well, he's, he's a quicker study. But anyway, I think that he's gotten much better at interviewing. And of course, it's in terms of the quality of uh, people that he gets on his show, too. But that was a really good conversation with Bob Iger. I did not listen to it, but I read Bob Iger's recently released uh, memoir. And... Mm-hmm. It is one of the few memoirs written by a CEO of a company that didn't read like it was written with a corporate lawyer standing over there back, you know, approving stuff like some of the stuff that he mistakes he made, stuff he admitted to, you know, don't get me wrong. He still massaged it a little, but there were a few times during that book. I'm like, did anybody at Disney's compliance department or whatever well, he was talking about versions. in the interview and he was talking about his book about many of his mistakes and some of it was just and his successes and how some of it was just like literally the right place at the right time he's like yeah i just happened to be working in this department and somebody walked in and said this 
And so I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can do that. I think that's one and of those. that th- turned that whole trajectory yes. of, you know, everything. Up I think that that's point. one of those things, though, that the harder you work, the luckier you get. Like just well, hearing about his background and studying his background, guy worked his butt off and to be in the right spot, you know, where he had the opportunity to make that move. And um, then on Tuesday, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, see ya. Drop the mic. I'm done. Well, and also, gee, another thing that uh, made him luckier was a great education. <laughs> and if you're wondering about how to pay for that education, I got to get through these pre-rolls. Head to Student Loan Hero. Student Loan Hero is the place to either plan how to fund your education or figure out how to lower your interest payments, maybe lower your payments in general. Get a strategy. Head to studentloanhero.com. You know what's really cool is today Brian Ursu financial planner up in Traverse City, Michigan, wrote a fantastic book, Helping People Get on That Right Path, called Now What? It's a practical guide to figuring out your financial future, and uh, and I'm pretty excited. Maybe we can help somebody start down that path, OG, right. on today's episode. The next CEO of Disney is listening right now. Probably listening. But first, we got a couple headlines, big headlines today, so let's get started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from MSN Entertainment by way of radio.com. Jackie Cataret wrote this piece. Kirk Douglas leaves most of his fortune to charity. You see this, OG? Yes, I did. Kirk Douglas was always a charitable person, Jackie writes. And that legacy continues well beyond his death earlier this month. Kirk passed away at the age of 103 on February 5th. Page 6 reports that the Hollywood icon left most of his $80 million fortune to charity, giving a bulk of the sum to the Douglas Foundation, which he co-founded nearly 60 years ago. Money will be split among various endeavors as the nonprofit benefits the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, the Kirk and Ann Douglas Childhood Center, and a St. Lawrence University scholarship for underprivileged students. Money will also go toward Westwood Sinai Temple and Culver City's Kirk Douglas Theater through the foundation, which is still under Ann Douglas's watch as she's the managing trustee. So it's going to charity, OG, but this doesn't work the way that a lot of people think that it works. Notice that there are theaters named after them. There are childhood centers named after them during his lifetime by pledging this money ahead, he was actually able to see some of the fruits of this, of this labor ahead of time. I think a lot of people think, okay, if I have money, I have to give it away now and I might need to live on it. Well, you could actually pledge the money now when you pass away and enjoy seeing people enjoying what you're bringing to the table. Well, I'm quite certain that in this case, he also gave a boatload of money while he was alive. Sure. You know, when it comes to any sort of charitable giving plan, I think it's important to be thoughtful about it. Even something as selfish as giving money to the alumni association. And there's a difference between doing it and then telling them that you're going to do it. If you do it, you might get a thank you t-shirt or something. If you tell them you're going to do it or the veracity of what you're going to do it, sometimes that comes with free football tickets. That may be important to you or it may not be, but especially for a charitable type of giving plan that is beyond the 50 or $100 a month type giving, uh, as you start thinking about the future, I don't think it's a bad idea to involve a lot of people in that decision, you know, because there's a lot of different ways that you can deal with that. 
you can have the charity be beneficiary of an investment account. You can have them be a beneficiary of an insurance policy. Selfishly, you might get a little something out of that ahead of time, you know? Yeah, I think over time, reassessing who your beneficiaries are. Maybe your kids don't need your money like they used to. Clearly, Kirk Douglas's kids, uh, I don't think, need his money. Yeah, don't Um, need as much. There might be more legacy concerns. Like, it's funny, you know, OG, you see people at this point in life, and we've talked about this before, where things change, where it's no longer about, am I able to be fi or fire? It's no longer about that. It's like, no, no, I'm going to be okay. Now, what's my next step? How do I make sure there's a legacy that I leave? What's my mark that I'm going to leave on the people around me that I care about or the organizations I care about, community? This is why I'm really quite interested in this concept of like a donor advised fund where you can still get the benefits of donating money to charity, i.e. the tax benefits of doing it, but you don't have to commit to it right away. Because I think it's safe to say that when you're 25... And when you're 55, you have different interests. You have different things that are important to you. You know, you learn and grow as a person and and there's different areas of opportunity that come up in your life that you're looking at it from the perspective of like, oh, I want to actually do something with this, you know, or help this organization out. But you didn't even know it existed when you were 25. So the benefit of something like a donor advised fund is you can maintain your contributions to charity. So you get the benefit of doing that, the tax benefits and so on and so forth. But you also get the benefits of recognizing that that money is much better off sitting there and compounding over a long period of time. You know, now the problem is that if you ask a charitable organization, would you rather have a hundred dollars today or a thousand bucks in 50 years from now when I die, they're going to say, we'll take the hundred today because they have operational expenses. They have needs that they're trying to fulfill now. So, um, you have to be aware of that, you know, uh, as well. But I think as you're, as you're building that legacy, if that's important to you, take a look at that donor fund thing, because just like compounding works for your Roth IRA, you know, you put in 500 bucks a month and all of a sudden you've got $3 million of tax-free money. The same thing happens with your charitable giving. You can put a little bit in and all of a sudden, you know, be 60, 70 years old or God forbid, 103 and have millions and millions and millions of dollars that are now available to, uh, to give to organizations that you care about. It's pretty exciting, but even people that aren't on that level, there's still a lesson here, which is for once, it looks like a superstar we're talking about. Their estate plan is going very smoothly. They they did an estate plan and it was exactly what he he wanted in this case. Different than Aretha Franklin. They actually left just one thing and it wasn't scribbled on a piece of paper and found in the couch after she passed away. Uh, Magically found on the couch. Which, yeah. Because that's where I put all my important legal documents. That is exactly. If you want to know where my stuff is when I pass away, it's in the broom closet. Check the cushions. Or, or it's not like Tom Petty, where he had some ambiguous language, right? That Prince. That, that made some of Prince, who had... No language. No language. Had, he just used symbols. Had, he used wingdings. <laughs> not that. His estate plan was wingdings. What does this mean? But it's good to see it going straight forward. According to plan. In our second headline, this from the New York Times and probably just about everywhere, into it to buy Credit Karma to create a financial data giant. Piece written by Nathaniel Popper and Michael J. Dillamer said, 
Into it, they write, the parent company of TurboTax and Mint agreed on Monday a couple weeks ago to pay $7.1 billion for Credit Karma, a startup that's become one of the most popular financial applications for young consumers. The deal, which is being paid for with a combination of cash and stock, is aimed at creating a Silicon Valley financial technology company that can serve as an online financial assistant for people, helping them get their credit scores, file their taxes, and find new loans and financial products. We can keep reading, but we're going to do one better. We dialed up our friend Ryan Falvey from Financial Venture Studio to join us. Ryan, glad you could help us out with this, man. Thanks, Joe. Excited to be back. Well, this was some big, exciting news to us. I mean, I don't know if exciting's right. Let's put it this way. It was big news. Yeah, it's absolutely big news. And I think it's it's a validation both of Ken Lin and the team he's built at Credit Karma, but I also think also kind of fintech more broadly. I mean, it answer, certainly starts answering the question, especially when taken against some of the other acquisitions that happened during the month of February of, is this real? I mean, are all these fintech companies hype? Is this just like Silicon Valley bubble-ish type of behavior or is there real businesses here? And, you know, when, when Intuit, I mean, this is the largest acquisition in Intuit's history, buy something like Credit Karma, I think you have to ask, you know, what does that mean? I mean, it's it's seven odd billion dollars is a serious amount of money for any company. So I I think it's certainly an exciting moment of validation for the industry. For people that have missed you on the show before, you have a front row seat on a lot of this because of the fact that you guys at Financial Venture Studios work with so many fintech companies and you've worked with so many fintech companies over the years. Let me start here. I read a piece in Forbes that said that uh, it was an opinion piece a column that said that Credit Karma shouldn't have sold into it because Intuit has found a way to pretty much destroy every company they've got their hands on. Do you agree with that assessment? No. I mean, I don't know. I mean, on two sides. One, someone offered you $7.1 billion for a company you started. I mean, it's a little kind of easy to sit here on the outside, but no, you should hold out for $15 billion. Like at some point, you know, it's, it's success. And then you've got to say, okay, well, what, what do I have ahead of me? What, what are the other options here? Where do I want to take the business? Is this the best outcome for my shareholders, for my employees? I mean, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of second get these. These are really hard decisions. And this company, you know, when you're you know, a company of a thousand people or jobs and a livelihood and working really hard and are getting compensated in stock, I think they can take these acquisitions really seriously. Intuit, its track record of Leveraging acquisitions and building on them, you know, may be mixed, but but frankly, every company that acquires has a mixed record. I mean, the, the history of acquisitions is generally one of kind of mediocre performance, and so to somehow, I mean, you could say that about literally any deal. And and so I I don't know if I agree with that. I think there are some elements of this deal in particular that are quite synergistic. You know, there's complementary elements to it. One, I think, what that particular column was pointing at was really questioning how well Intuit's been able to build a consumer business. I mean, Mint is an example of it. They haven't done a great job of growing Mint, but I imagine there's a not small portion of your audience that uses Mint and loves a product. And so could that be bigger? Yes. And has Credit Karma found an amazing way to engage consumers? Absolutely. And are there far more people on Credit Karma using that platform than Mint than Intuit? Yes. And so I think that adds something of real value there into Intuit's universe. And then the tax piece, the product that Credit Karma was building was certainly trying to leverage that consumer engagement. I, I think if you were going to criticize this, I mean, I think that's probably where I would be more focused is on, you know, what does this do to competition and tax pre- preparation? But there was a logic to Credit Karma doing both those things. And now that they're both going to be done, 
I think there's, there's really compelling reason to do it. Yeah. I was going to ask you two real questions. Number one was for consumers. What do you think this means? I think this means very little if you're a happy credit karma user of the core credit karma product suite. You're using it to check your credit score, stay on top of your credit, you know, look for shop for credit cards, the financial products. That is going to be continued. I mean, there's no doubt that's going to be into its continued focus. One kind of interesting thing about how Intuit's structured is they, they tend to, well, one of the reasons they haven't done a great job of, of leveraging these acquisitions is they, they kind of treat all these as disparate businesses. And so one would expect that Credit Karma will be kind of left alone on that, that piece of it. I would be really surprised if Intuit left the Credit Karma tax product alone. That one, I think, is one where we'll kind of see what happens there. And if you've been, if you were a frustrated TurboTax user and had taken the Credit Karma to stick it to the man over there, the, yeah, I, the I, man just yeah, stuck it to you. <laughs> we'll see. You know, there's all sorts of different strategies in business, but you know, getting paid usually is, is preferable to, to free if you're a businessman or a woman. So sure. I, I would expect that Intuit will want to continue charging for tax preparation. We talked to our mutual friend uh, George Kurtica over at Joust mm-hmm. about this a little bit on our sister show, Money with Friends, Ryan, and he was talking about. You know, for Intuit, too, this is really wholesale buying a big customer base, too. I mean, Credit Karma's built up a nice string of people's emails and nice customer base. Yes, absolutely. Although I will say customers on the Internet can be pretty flighty. And and that's one of the reasons I think that Intuit is going to do and the team at Credit Karma is probably business as usual for the foreseeable future. Because the reason they have so many customers is people trust Credit Karma. People show up there. And even today, you show up at Credit Karma's front page and you're being told, you know, find out your credit score. I mean, they're very focused on building trust with the consumer and doing right by a consumer. And they've never overloaded that business with ads and predatory loan offers and things like that. I would be shocked if Intuit went down that path. But I think that if they did, those 100 million consumers would probably start finding other places to shop. Dwindle. Yeah. I was going to ask you the other piece of this which I think is definitely in your wheelhouse. We haven't seen a lot of this mergers and acquisitions stuff yet. And then we see this. We also see what lending tree buying a bank. We're starting to see more in that for fintech founders versus going public. Is this kind of a sea change if you're a fintech founder? Well, I don't know if I'd compare them to going public. I think what you're seeing here is frankly a realization and awareness that there's real value being created in fintech and incumbents, figuring out how to how to get a hold of those companies. I think the best performing IPO of last year, if not the best, certainly one of the best ones was Bill.com, which went public at the end of the year and has done really well as a public company so far. Something like Plaid's acquisition by Visa or you know, Credit Karma by Intuit. I mean, these were done at, at pretty significant premiums that, you know, I'm not a public equity analyst, so I can't tell you if they would have been able to get that on the public markets, but these are premiums that were incumbents, I think, are buying for both offensive reasons. They want to build the business, get part of that growth. And also, I think, to a degree, defensive reasons of making sure that they're not they're not losing something that could be really, really valuable down the road. Frankly, I think we're on the beginnings of really a significant period of probably continued consolidation and acquisition in fintech. One of the kind of vagarities of what's been happening so far is that most of the companies have been acquiring have been non-bank entities. They've been software companies or Visa or you know, which are not, they're not banks. I think what you might start seeing sooner uh, rather than later will be actually banks coming into the fold. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of banks in this country. You even hinted at that when you and I talked at the beginning of this year, that maybe we'd see more of that. And already it seems to be headed that way. 
I wish I had as much conviction mentally when I told you that as I as I sounded to, because I could would have gone out and like bought some of these stocks. Or, you know. Well, hey, hey, Who man. <laughs> well, before we let you go, uh, you're always looking for good founders, people with great ideas. If somebody has a great fintech uh, product they're working on, how do they find you to help them out? Yeah, I mean, reach out. We're at finventurestudio.com. We actually just finished up our application process, and so we've got a bunch of new companies that we're starting to work with. We'll be announcing here in the next month or so, so hopefully we can find ways to get them on your show and in front of your audience. Um, I mean, if anyone's ever working on something, we're, you know, we're open all year, and so they should reach out, and we'll be in touch. Well, and we'll link to uh, Ryan and uh, Financial Venture Studio, which is finventurestudio.com on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Ryan, thanks for weighing in on this, being available for us. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Ryan for stopping by. You know, it's interesting seeing all of this consolidation shows us, OG, that things are changing all the time. And one thing that might be changing for you is that you may be getting ready to take some classes upgrade your skills, or maybe somebody in your family is looking at an education, which is why it's great to have an education plan. If that plan involves money from somebody else, you've seen how important it is to not get into debt over your head. As Brian talked about earlier, that's why we like studentloanhero.com. When you go to student loan hero, what you'll find out is if you already have loans, there are ways for many student loans to refinance those in fact, there are articles about the eight best banks to refinance and consolidate your loans in 2020. Ten essential things to ask before you refinance your student loans. OG, you and I know that sometimes refinancing is a big mistake because some loans have provisions that you won't get back if you consolidate them. Also, if you're struggling to pay your loans, how to lower your payments. They have the ultimate guide to lowering your student loan payments or out-and-out out forgiveness, the complete list of student loan forgiveness programs and options and public service loan forgiveness. Do you qualify? Lots of tools, including not just listings of the products that are out there, calculators, quizzes, but tools also for people getting ready to go to school. Make sure you have a plan around your student loans, whether it's subsidized student loans, unsubsidized loans, parent plus loans. You need to know all that. And Student Loan Hero makes it easy. Head to studentloanhero.com to get a better education to help you make education easier. Great time to be in fintech, OG. I can't wait for the economy to take a crap and everybody spins all these products off again to their own separate entities. <laughs> we put them together, we break them up. We put them together, yeah. we break them up. Well, it's the same thing with like cable and cutting the cord and all that sort of stuff. Like, I'm cutting the cord. I have 10 $11 a month subscriptions, but that's way better for me than one $60 cable subscription. Yeah, I'll show yeah. them. I think I saw this meme a couple of months ago where it was a picture of a sales guy that said, now wait, I can put this all together for you and charge you one low, low fee for all of the TV programs. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to keep paying all these separate subscription fees. Yeah. Who wants yeah. that? I don't want it's, that you know, stuff. You know, come back together. But I think even though Ryan and I didn't talk about this, I think there is another takeaway, which is think about maybe not a complete merger, but who do you work well with? What are some partnerships you could get into that would make you maybe go faster? You know, is there a way to make one-on-one? -on -one? I mean, clearly that's what Intuit and Credit Karma are hoping for here. Sure. Intuit, I think, is trying to, can I say, just blow everything up because that's pretty much what they do when they touch everything. 
say destroy it and credit like mint and credit karma is just going that's a lot of money we're out of here (laughs) exactly let's not be so cynical my friend Let's, oh, all right. Let's, let, a, it's a merger of equals. Is that what we're no, saying? No, let's just pretend synergistic. That, that synergistic. Yes. Yeah. How great is this? You can check your credit score and do your taxes in the same click of a button. Well, as we talked about earlier, Intuit already had a product, but not competing mm-hmm. with Credit Karma, but not doing nearly as well. I think that's a good lesson, though. Look for synergies. And then second is uh, thinking about Charity Begins at Home. Maybe there are some opportunities. And aspirationally, if you're somebody who's made it and you think you have enough to live the rest of your life, here's your bigger question. What's next? Brian Ursu is a financial planner in Traverse City, Michigan, just a absolutely beautiful part of our state here. If you've never been to that area, man, I should keep my mouth shut because I kind of like it being too little, late. When was the last time you were up there? A little bit Everybody's less. moving. Every, everybody is there. Brian, though, has been there for a long time after moving from Southeast Michigan, where we are now a guy that uh, I've apparently lived close to for a long time, but never knew. He's got a new book out though, that we absolutely loved called now what? Practical Guide to Figuring Out Your Financial Future. And last year, we had the amazing Colleen Bordeaux on talking about what do we do overall. Brian's a guy who sat down with a lot of people in their 20s and said, okay, what are we going to do next? So instead of looking at the next credit card or buying that new car, looking all the ways you can get into debt, how do you set yourself up well? We'll talk to Brian about that now. Brian Ursu coming down to the basement. And here he comes down the stairs. Look at this. Brian Ursu, our new friend, Brian, coming down to the basement. How are you, man? I'm great, Joe. How are you? Well, I'm fantastic. You're here. It is amazing that we live, by the way, as close to each other as we do, just a few hours away. And I was I was so surprised after I read your book, I'm looking up where you are and, and you're right in my backyard. Yeah, it's awesome. And I'm surprised at how roomy your mom's basement is. <laughs> well, you got to start coming to game night now. That's that's <laughs> the next step. First the right. interview, then we con you into coming to board game night. All right, great. <laughs> well, let's talk about your work here because my understanding just from the introduction, Brian, is that while you published this book, it really wasn't a mass consumption idea. You were writing it specifically to one person. That's that's correct. And if anybody else benefits, I'm so happy. But we had a uh, a daughter that we kind of adopted. She was an exchange student and then loved her so much that we kept her and helped her get through college. And she went from being a poverty level student to a software engineer. And her job offer came. It was about six or seven pages and couldn't understand many of the terms. And so asked me, you know, for advice as to what books to read. And so I gave her the normal books that I would recommend. And she did read them because she's a reader and came back and said, those are for people that are much farther along on their journey. And um, you're a good writer. Why don't you write it? So I did what any good dad would do. I I wrote the book. <laughs> it, was, it was so wild when I read that. And it's very interesting because 
you go over a few things about millennials. I don't think anybody's ever confused you and I with being a millennial, but, no. but you say that millennials vastly underestimate how long they'll live. And as a financial planner, I used to be a financial planner, Brian. That's the thing that you guys as CFPs are talking about that I don't see people talk about enough outside of the CFP world is that millennials are going to live a long, long time. Yeah. And we're starting to factor that into financial plans. It used to be inflation risk was the primary risk or market risk that we address. And now it's longevity risk. So our eldest client died sadly a couple of years ago. She was 102. It's crazy. So millennials are having access to better health care, better nutrition, better lifestyle decisions. And so they're going to tend to live longer. Um, medical advances are going to help improve that. So it's quite possible that retirement, whatever that looks like, will be longer than their working years. You said there's also, though, a lot of, uh, you know, you talked about inflation risk was a big risk. A lot of millennials don't understand that either, that the price of stuff goes up. Yeah, right. And so when you retire and you think you have a, an income that's sufficient, if the cost of living averages what it has for the last 40 years, your costs are going to double in about 25 years. That's when I really start feeling like an old guy, Brian. I don't know about you, but but, but when I when I start bitching about the cost of a candy bar at the store or or a loaf of bread or something, then I go, oh my goodness, I'm turning into my dad. Exactly. <laughs> and who left the lights on, by the way, right. and the door open? <laughs> That's right. And then it turns out it was me, and then I have to shut my mouth. But uh, <laughs> over half of millennials don't understand compounding interest. Yeah. And this is truly magical. And when people see that in black and white in the book and how compounding interest works, it's like a miracle. Like I've never seen anything like that before. That's some of the feedback that I've gotten back from readers is I had no idea that math works that way. You know, and it's funny because for a lot of millennials, Brian, as you know, they, they kind of came of age during the 2007, 2008 real estate crisis, the whole meltdown. And I've read many people saying that on one, so they saw their parents and older friends lose a ton of money. And then they don't understand compounding on top of that. Like that, that makes it worse. They're burying their head in the sand at the same time that they should be being very aggressive with their money. Exactly. But you can't blame them. I remember having a professor in college I can't exactly remember the name of the book, but what you are now is what you were when. And the premise of the book is that you form your views on the world and finance and everything between the ages of like seven and 14. So whatever was happening during that period of time, that's how you see the world. So when I started working as a financial advisor, I was working with the greatest generation they formed their views during the Great Depression. So they would save tinfoil, they would save paper towel, they would, that's how they saw things even when prosperity boomed around them. And so millennials, many of them saw their parents lose their job. Some saw their parents walk away from a house because it was underwater. It was a period of time which was very unique. And so to no fault of their own, that's how they kind of frame the world. And so what I'm hoping to do is encourage them to take action, to be empowered, to move beyond what fears they have by giving them the education that they need in order to take the steps in the right direction. Well, and one more stat you have in the introduction that uh, that is not just being more aggressive, but also kind of learning the rules is that 43% of people you say have pulled money out early 
uh, from retirement plans. 43% of millennials taking money out of things like IRAs or old 401ks and paying these huge penalties because they don't understand how it works. And it's ridiculous. So they're paying taxes and penalties. They've just shot themselves in the foot. And as I would say in the book, really put their future self in peril, in jeopardy. As I was flipping through the pages, I wanted to find something that we could dive into. And I thought that the first chapter of the book would be a fantastic thing for us to really explore. That way we don't end up skimming. Do you want me to read it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could you read to us, please? <laughs> we, we don't end up skimming the entire book. And on the other side, though, you know, we can give people some real depth. And you present four things that, in my view, are kind of like the the cornerstones of the financial planning house, I think. When you look at these four things, your house is built on a much more, much more solid foundation, kind of introducing that. I want to juxtapose these four things with some people that you met. You tell a great story that I'd love for you to repeat for us which is about a couple that you met early in your career. You said around 1989, they're two educators, they're driving brand new cars and they come into your office. Can you tell this story? Cause this was back when I was a financial planner, I saw this every day, Brian, and I was, and, uh, and it so illustrates, I think what we're about to dive into. It sadly is a great story and I don't know what happened to them, but I do remember them very distinctly. They came into my office, they're looking for help. We go through the data gathering as you would. This is your income. This is how much you owe. And as they were revealing things, they owe more and more. And I'm looking that they both drive brand new cars. They have a huge mortgage on a house that's very expensive. And oh, by the way, they have a motorhome and there's a loan on that. So I don't know who the banker is that's giving them all the, the loans, but they have a house of cards and they're in their 50s. They're approaching retirement within you know a decade or so and they're completely unprepared because they don't have anything saved or invest they've saved nothing they got all these high-end toys and they've saved zip zero and then here's the kicker what they needed help with now on how to pay for all of these things what they needed help with is putting their two daughters who are in high school through college that's what they asked you <laughs> that's what they asked me and and I remember mustering all the the, uh, I don't know, Hutzpah? courtesy <laughs> that I could yeah, and said, at night, when you go to bed, how, when you put your head on the pillow, how do you fall asleep? Because this makes me anxious. And I remember kind of having almost an out-of-body experience because here I'm 20-something and I'm kind of scolding people that are double my age that have just put themselves into a corner. They couldn't get their daughters to summer camp, let alone through college, the way that they have it structured. And it was embarrassing to me. And I felt like I had to be direct. And I didn't try to shame them, but I had to be direct and let them know this was unsustainable. And they're asking the wrong questions. And part of the solution was some type of a liquidation strategy to live within their means. And so that's that's the story. And if we can get a hold of people before they put themselves into that position, which is what the book is trying to do, then we're going to launch people in the right direction. And there's another point that you make, too, which this couple should have been anxious about their money. But frankly, when you meet with people all the time, Brian, in your practice, everybody's pretty anxious about their money. 
For sure. We see the markets that are volatile, but over time they work in your favor. So if you look at them at any point in time, it may cause you uh, concern or fear. But the reality is over the long term, which is what we're looking for, they're going to do fine. But you have to have the basic fundamental understanding of how to use them and the mistakes to avoid. It's funny when you talk about the mistakes to avoid. I'm going to uh, preface these four cornerstones one more way. You say at the beginning of this chapter that you're the master of the obvious in your family. You get right, done exactly. You get done with food at a restaurant, I think, and you say, "Does anybody want to ride home?" Exactly. You don't assume anything. <laughs> That's and such a funny. My kids have they just kind of roll their eyes now, <laughs> but I don't do it for them. I do it because I enjoy it. But I also want them to understand that don't take anything for granted. Well, and that's what, as people are listening to this, whether you're on your commute or walking the dog or whatever, I don't want you to think about these four things Brian and I are about to talk about. Have you heard them before? I want you to think about what are you doing versus what you hear? Because most financial planning concepts, as you know, Brian, are not rocket science, but people, they're not messing up the tough stuff. They're messing up these easy ones. The basics. Yeah. And I also tell a story in the in the book about, you know, I played soccer in junior high, high school and college. And I remember every coach I had working on the fundamentals, just driving me crazy. All I want to do is play. All I want to do is scrimmage. And I think a lot of people, all they want to do is invest or, you know, put some money away. But they've skipped a whole step by not focusing on the fundamentals. And so every time we did toe touches or sprints or passing drills or set pieces or whatever, those were helping to put us into position so that we could achieve a good game and a good outcome. All right. So let's go over these four things that I call cornerstones, right? You call them rules to live by. Number one, here's a shocker. Spoiler alert. Don't spend more than you make. (laughs) It is comical to talk about it. But without having a budget and having an idea of how much money is coming in, we have no idea how much we should spend. In the book, I I think I make the connection that you're not the U.S. government. You can't spend more than you make. You can't print money. That's illegal. And so you have to live within your means. And many young people want to pick up right where their parents left them off and have a lifestyle that's very similar to what they had before, and that's not realistic. And so living within your means is going to help prevent a lot of mistakes later on and give you some positive cash flow with which you can work and operate, pay down debt, and start getting invested. People that are just beginning, Brian, have a have an opportunity that you and I didn't have, which is to use technology to help them with budgeting and tracking. Do you recommend or do you see clients that that use some apps that you really like to track or are you more of a paper guy or Excel cell spreadsheet or I'm more of a guy that likes whatever that person likes. So I don't want to impose the my view on it. You know, paper and pencil worked great for me, but other people may prefer an app or uh, some other Excel spreadsheet or something of their own making. Whatever it is that That is their jam. That's what they should be using. But to keep track of the money that's coming in and going out. And in the book, I also indicate that over the course of your working career, you may see two to three million dollars flow through your hands over the course of your career, just through wages. And those are just the averages. We all know your listeners are above average, so they're going to see more than that. 
But that's a lot of money to be responsible for. And on the other end of that, you should have something to show for it. And we're hoping financial security is what we have. Yeah, we did a survey and both our listeners consider themselves way above average, Brian. <laughs> That's a, awesome. Huge. They are both fantastic. I want to ask about inside your practice. I don't want to get into, you know, disclosing anybody in particular's financial situation, but you get to see a lot of people's budgets. Where where do you see people are really making a mistake with their budget that uh, maybe we could help somebody out with? I think the easiest place to make improvements would be discretionary spending. And these are the decisions that we make, whether it's shopping, going out to dinner, going to a great concert, you know, whatever it might be, that's that's an easy, that's within their control. The second area would be with financing debt and the loans. And if, if you have student loans or car loans or whatever it is, getting on top of those and focusing on those so that you have some breathing room on the other side to operate and, and have a little bit more discretion with your income. Next up is another one that people might have heard before, but you see people not do all the time. Pay yourself first. Right. I remember starting out meeting with people that were basically blue collar workers that were retiring with a ton of money and they could do everything they wanted to do. They didn't have any debt. And I was scratching my head thinking, how did you do that? And they told me we just started with whatever we could. And at that time, it might have been $15 per paycheck. It might have been $20 per paycheck. And we just did what we could. And then over time, it, it compounded and grew. And so that really made me look at the compounding interest and kind of what we can do to move that in our favor. I think people get afraid when they see some of these big numbers financial planners present, or if they're using a financial planning tool. Hey, to get to the retirement I want, I only need about $3 million. And you know, I'm 24, I'm starting just out of college. And I think, how the heck am I going to come up with that? I, I think yeah, that, it's so discouraging <laughs> to put a big number on it. And there's a national company that asks the question, what is your number? I think it's the wrong question to ask. The question you should be asking is, what are you doing today? to put yourself into position. And we'll look at that number as we get closer. So the illustration I use with clients is we have a, I have a lot of original artwork in our office. And so we have one that's kind of an impressionist view of a countryside scene with uh, water and so forth. And I said, your retirement is kind of like this painting. You can tell that's water. You can tell it's landscape. You can tell it's autumn. The sky is amazing, but you can't see the detail. So that's kind of our view right now is we know what it's going to look like as we approach that. It's going to look like a photograph where you're going to see the detail. You're going to see every leaf on the tree. And you're going to see the water rippling. And so that's kind of how we want to focus on it. And this idea of what is your number is focusing on the photograph image instead of the more general impressionist view. I love that analogy. And yet I also think the more somebody, Brian, can make the goal as crystal clear as they can, the easier it is to save. Because putting money away for 30 years from now, as you know, is against our nature as people. Yeah, we're always immediate gratification over <laughs> delayed gratification. I get that. And I'm not asking people to live within a budget so that they can have some great retirement. It's not an either or. It's a both and. This is how to achieve a balance where you can look out for future self and take care of current self at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. You can do both. The third one, 
And um, back a decade ago and before when I was a financial planner, the one I saw people violate all the time was this one. Have an emergency fund. Man, it always sounds great. You hear pundits say this all the time, have an emergency fund. When I was behind closed doors looking at people's money back then, man, nobody had an emergency fund. No. And it's the single biggest key to at least avoiding those mistakes, you know, to to put yourself into position. And so I can't remember the stat. It You could Google it and find it. But some high percentage of the population couldn't afford a $1,000 expense that suddenly popped up. And it's something like 70 or 80% of the population couldn't afford a $1,000 expense if it popped up. Well, those can happen. That's a medical expense. It could be a home repair or furnace. It could be a new set of tires or car repair, something like that. You need to be in position to be able to cover those expenses as you go so that you're not putting it on a credit card and getting yourself deeper into debt. So, you know, $1,000 is a good starting point, but I would like to see people have an emergency fund of three to six months of their living expenses as a target. I tell people it's an emergency fund and for opportunity. So if something comes up that is a great opportunity, great new pair of skis, a great trip with friends, you don't have to take a pass on that and you don't have to put it on a credit card. You have the cash available for that and you just go out and do it. And then you build that emergency fund back up to where it should be. What do you say to uh, the Uber nerds out there who look at the interest rate that you get on a savings account or a high yield savings account and go, you know what, Brian, why am I going to sit money in this account earning nothing? The amount of interest that you earn on that is immaterial at this point. It's down to close to zero. So, you know, back when I was a little boy, we had passbook savings accounts. You got 5% and you could go in and they would literally write it in with the pen. And it was so exciting. Now, now they give away pens, but because they don't have any interest to pay you. So, (laughs) So the way I would look at it is you're not necessarily losing money by not getting any interest. But if you didn't have that emergency fund and you put it on a credit card, you're paying 18 to 20 percent interest. So it's that's kind of the deterrent of having to pay that kind of interest. Yeah. Better than the alternative. You get into trouble and nowhere to go. Yeah. Especially in a market that's been as volatile as we've had. You're going to your positions when uh, when it's a roller coaster every day. Right. Uh, Last one, speaking of roller coasters, a lot of people, I think, need to be reminded of this right now as you and I are talking. Think long term. Right. I use the analogy of this as, you know, I used to be a runner uh, back before I had bad knees (laughs) and didn't enjoy running. But you have to keep your head up and look at the horizon. So if you spend your time looking at your shoelaces, looking at the pavement moving under your feet, you are going to hit a light pole or you're going to end up on somebody's YouTube because you're going to fall over a bridge into the river or whatever it is. You can't keep looking at your feet. You have to look at the long-term horizon. So investing is no different. It is kind of a marathon in some ways, and you can't look at the day-to-day fluctuations. Much like if you were a gardener and you're growing carrots, you don't go out there in the middle of the night and pull one up to see how far it grew, you know, and put it back in and hope that it's going to keep going. You have to trust that the process is going to work. You water it, you make sure it gets light, And it'll grow and you'll have a delicious carrot. Same thing with investing. If you look at it day by day, it'll drive you crazy. Those will start having influence on your behavior and your relationships. So you can look at it and this is a bad day. 
and now I'm angry and now I'm not going to have a good day with, you know, or good conversations or good visits with my friends, it will color your behavior and your views. Yeah. It's so frustrating and also amazing how, how important just that outlook is that, um, I guess, uh, positive long-term outlook, especially in a, well, not even especially in a volatile market just all the time. I think your attitude is so important and it drives so much. You know, we won't get to that section in the book, but there's a whole section on how how to frame your attitude and set goals and be a person that is stretching and reaching for more and better. Not because you want to brag and pat yourself on the bag, but because you're worthy of it. Yeah. And in the book, you go over paying off student loans, responsible debt management, paying your bills through options at work, buying a car, buying a house or condo, having a plan, having children. Part three, you call the good stuff, basics of investing, types of investments, creating a portfolio, then into behavioral finance, advanced planning, and leaving a legacy. Before we get to where everybody can get the book, Brian, I got to bring up one more thing. You talked about marathons and uh, my Favorite half marathon, besides the one I used to put on when I lived in Texas, which is called the Run the Line Half Marathon, where you'd run down the Arkansas-Texas state line, is the one in Traverse City, Michigan, which is where you practice. I would run the Cherry Festival of Races and do that half marathon where you're running down Grand Traverse Bay. Yeah. I saw a photo of you, and you're on like a pedal board in your suit. And I guess, I guess I understand that that's not Photoshop. Were you in Grand Traverse Bay when that was taken? I wish I was in Lake Michigan. And <laughs> so we, we had about two foot rollers that day. And I just love being on the paddleboard. And a friend of mine is a professional photographer. And I said, Hey, I'd love to, you know, I'd like to marry kind of these two. It's a juxtaposition, right? A guy in a suit and then a guy on a paddleboard. I don't love wearing a suit, but that's who I am and being on a paddleboard. So it was so cool. So we got out there early in the morning because it's supposed to be still and it was blowing like crazy. And I said, well, let's just do it a different day. And he goes, no, no, we're here. I got the equipment. Let's just try. So I figured, eh, worst case I get wet, but I didn't and I loved it. And so I spent a lot of time on Lake Michigan and I do a lot of stand up paddle boarding. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, you're right. Not in a suit, but that's hilarious. That's great marketing, my friend. Uh, <laughs> the book is called Now What? A Practical Guide to Figuring Out Your Financial Future. We're getting close to graduation time. I think it's a great graduation gift for people. Where do we get it, Brian? So you can go to the website, Brian Ursu, B-R-I-A-N-U-R-S-U.com. And there you can download some free content. You can get the first four chapters, I think, that we were discussing today. And it will give you options to buy it. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, many of the local bookstores. And uh, right now it's available paperback and Kindle. I've had requests for Audible. If you buy the book, I will come to your house or your basement <laughs> and I will read it. We'll record it and then we'll put it up together as a, an Audible book. You're the first guest I've had that seems a little disappointed I didn't have you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> also there, by the way, and if for anybody on their commute or wherever, if you don't have a pen handy, just head to our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com and we'll have the link to briannersu.com. Brian, thanks for hanging out with us and talking. I love your mom's basement. <laughs> well, it's awesome. <laughs> and I didn't realize shag carpet still existed. So it's great. It is in vogue as far as we know. Right, right. And beanbag chairs. Too. Absolutely. Thanks for hanging out, man. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Joe. Hey there, 
Hollywood trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And today, I have another dose of my amazing trivia just for you. That's right. Today, we're going to talk about a big money topic, uh, which is... Hey, excuse me, pal. Uh, why don't you move over? What the, who the hell? Uh, I'm your stunt double, Robert. Stunt? Move over, pal. The guys decide this trivia is way too risky for you. Uh, if they're going to increase your credit line from 5 to $10 a month, they can't have you going and hurting yourself performing some who-knows-what trivia acrobatics. Stunt double? Come on, pal. I sound just like you, don't I? Oh, n not, and not thank really. thank God there's no video of this show because, well, there's no question I'm more handsome. All right, wait a minute. Who let this guy okay, in Okay, time for you to move over. Now get out. Slide over, son. I'm going to bring this thing home for you. Oh. I, I, okay. One. Two <clears throat> and a brown fox. One, two. On today's show, we're going to talk about, well, probably the most important job of all time stunt men. So here's a question for you. In the highest paying stunt at the time in 1979 for a movie called High Point, stuntman Dar Robinson was paid $100,000 to fall from what iconic Canadian landmark? I'll be back with the very dangerous answer in just a moment. Well, OG and I are both big fans of Masterclass. I'm going through right now the Masterclass featuring Steve Martin. He's talking about how to plan out your humor so that it has a good pace and good timing. And uh, You don't take very many notes, do you? I, it's going to take a lot more than him. But what's cool... See, timing. Bam! What's up? <laughs> what, what's cool is... After him, I've also got Jubbed Apatow waiting in the wings. So more more on comedy. But cooking, comedy, negotiation, running a business, working with people. In fact, the real-life woman that Meryl Streep plays. I think a lot of people don't know that Meryl Streep in the movie Devil Wears Prada, that that's a real person that she is emulating, a woman named Anna Wintour, who's the executive editor of Vogue magazine. And Anna Wintour gives a, the real life Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada gives, gives a class. And as we mentioned before, the uh, recently retired Mr. Bob Iger. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by lots of masters of their craft. You can learn the art of negotiation from Chris Voss, improve your Mexican cooking skills, uh, or learn scientific thinking. Over 75 exclusive classes taught by the masters you know and love. I asked Andrew at Masterclass, we were talking recently, OG, you asked me to ask Andrew how this all started. Like, how do you get all these people? You look through the list of names and you wonder what happened. You know what Andrew said? He said, there's a reason why in the first year we only had four. The key was getting somebody to do it. And once they got the first person to do it and they were able to show how great a job they did, the graphics are good, the downloadable materials are fantastic, the written lessons are good, the way that they frame uh, uh, the sound quality, I mean, it, it is just a first-class product. And once they showed other people that, he said that a lot of these people wanted to make sure that they left just, we talked earlier with Kirk Douglas about legacy they wanted to leave a bigger legacy. They wanted to be able to tell their story. And so they were happy to participate, which is why now there's so many of them. Masterclass is an app 
accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV that offers classes on a wide variety of topics. They're all taught by world-class masters at the top of their field, and every class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable material, which you can explore at your own pace. So whether you're interested in TV writing, game design, investigative journalism, French pastry fundamentals, there's a masterclass for you. I remember the masterclass I took with Aaron Sorkin. One big thing that I learned about writing scripts, which we do often here, is if the bad guy in the third act of your movie is going to use a gun, he's got to flash the gun ahead of time. The gun can't appear out of nowhere. If a gun's going to be used in act three, you have to show him using it in act one to build the stake. So that's why the bad guy will often and early in a movie will shoot a few people and then he's face to face with the good guy. Now you've got a problem. Now you've got a standoff and you know the stakes are high because you've already seen what the bad, bad person can do. So Wonder Woman or Wonder Man has a big job. I'm the good guy in this story, but keep going. Everybody's on the edge of their seat. I thought that was one of many takeaways from Aaron Sorkin's screenwriting and drama class. <laughs> You're so like all about like being a better human. I'm like, I kind of want some lobster Thermidor. So... I'm going to do that. <laughs> can, I, can I get the Gordon Ramsay one? Right. Uh, I'm going to have Thomas Keller show me how to poach lobster. Because <laughs> that sounds delicious. So we highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a stacker, you'll get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash stacking. That's masterclass.com slash stacking for 15% off masterclass. trivia nerds i'm joe's mom's neighbor doug and here's the answer to today's totally dangerous and completely authentic trivia question the question for those of you who don't dare to remember was this stuntman dar robinson was paid one hundred thousand dollars way back in 1979 to jump off of what iconic canadian landmark landing him in the guinness book of world records as late as 1986 the answer Robinson, one of the top stuntmen ever, jumped off of Toronto's CN Tower in 1979, opening a parachute only 300 feet above ground. Robinson went on to perform stunts in many other movies, but died during what observers call a fairly routine motorcycle crash. It was for a movie in 1986. Amazing, huh? And dangerous? I'm Joe's mom's very dangerous neighbor, Doug, saying, see ya. I thought Robert did a good job. Not bad. I'd like to see him jump through some fire, though, or something. Just spread his wings a little. Should we tell him that? Just say, hey, we were going to have Doug jump through some fire? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just to, to like do fall off things. a building. You know, the cool stuff. Might have to pay him a little more. I think he, he might think this. Well, you don't really fall off the building. You know what I mean? I, like you yeah, jump no, into like the big marshmallow yeah. pit or whatever yeah, it is. No, like the CN Tower thing we just talked about. Yeah. You open the parachute 300 feet before you hit the ground. Could you imagine, by the way, being 300 feet above the ground before you open your parachute? Uh, no. <laughs> That's very close to the ground. That is, that is terminal a, velocity. That is yeah. way too close. Yeah. He still must have hit the ground hard. I don't know. I don't know anything about parachuting. No. 
And I think we'll I think we'll leave it that way. Hey, uh, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline. Oh, gee, there's an idea. We're going to tackle some of life's most important questions right now. We've been talking earlier about estate planning. Well, our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, your loved ones and your time, because who knows how much time you have, OG. That's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple so that you can spend more time doing the things that you want to do and know that you're covered. Their application process is simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable. All the policies offered by Mass Mutual. A company's more than 160 years old, and we've already talked about how much we like their calculators. We talked earlier about Student Loan Hero has some great calculators for student loans. Haven Life, stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life, great calculators instead of using some silly rule of thumb to figure out how much life insurance you need. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline, though, to Jose. Say hi, Jose. Hey, Joe and OG. My name is Jose. I'm from New York. I just have a general question. For the past couple of years, I've noticed that I get a pretty decent refund, and I'm just wondering, how can I go about changing my deductions so I get more of that money during my paycheck instead of during the refund? Any information that you guys could give will be greatly appreciated. Thank you. A great question, and Jose going the other way, OG, not looking to get the big refund, which really is an interest-free loan to... Our friends in Washington, instead, get it uh, get it in his paycheck. What are some tips to get that done? Well, first of all, the way that I think about it is if you're plus or minus about a thousand bucks, you're kind of in the ballpark. You know, once you kind of exceed owing a thousand or you're starting to get about a thousand bucks more back as a refund, I think that maybe you're just a little off kilter there. I got to be real honest with this. I don't know the answer anymore because they changed the W-4 this year to uh, make it quote unquote simpler. Cause remember you used to be able to say, Hey, I want to be single. I want to be married. I want to have 10 dependents. I want to have six dependents. I want one, you know, and that would adjust your uh, withholding profile. I think now all you can do is just select whether you're married or single, and then you can have more withdrawn if you want based on a certain dollar amount but I'm not aware of a way to make it less anymore. So I think probably the best thing to do is to maybe revisit that W-4 form, go on the IRS website and look up that W-4 calculator that they have and see, maybe you just have the wrong thing. Maybe, you know, maybe you're marking yourself single, but you're married and you got three kids, you know, and it's just been that way since you started your job, you know, 22 years ago or something. That would be the first place that I would check. And then the other place that I would check is, frankly, this is tax time. And who better to ask than your CPA? And they should be able to sit down. And this is true for everybody. One of the questions that you should ask when you get your taxes done is, am I doing this thing right? You know, are there are there things that I should be doing throughout the year that I'm not aware of to make my life or make your life easier, make it cost less money to do this uh, tax work every single every single year? especially, I know Jose didn't talk about this, but especially if you're a business owner, if you're not doing at least one checkup through the year and maybe two with one being at the end of the year with your CPA or tax preparer, not sitting down and saying, well, here's, here's how the year's shaken out so far. Cause in January, we've all got good business goal ideas. We go, I think this is what I'm going to try to do. And then by December, <laughs> those things maybe have happened or maybe they didn't, you know, or maybe you blew them out of the water. So it's good to have kind of a mid-year review on on that, especially if you're a, 
ongoing payer like a business owner. But if you're getting a fair amount of money back, I would start with the W-4 and then I would start with, uh, secondly, then I would go to the CPA and say, I don't want to get 5,200 bucks back every year. How do I get $500 a month back in my paycheck? And they should be able to figure it out for you. I also think for people that have very, and maybe not hugely simple taxes, but have very straightforward taxes and just use tech software. I know you can also go into that tech software. Most tech software programs have projections and you can take your, your paycheck and just look at that too, OG. Yeah, that's a good place to go. Yeah. And as OG mentioned, your HR department as well. Good stuff. Thanks for the question, Jose. Got a question for us? Head to stackofbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And not only is Jose going to have more money in his pocket, he's also going to have some Stacking Benjamins Haven Life swag on his chest. Everybody wins there. Or Jose wins twice, maybe. Everybody doesn't win. Jose wins. Jose gets to win big. Big winner. I think that's going to do it for today. I will let Doug do all the thanking. Lots of people to thank on today's episode. As usual, a circus man. Too bad we didn't talk about anything. Man, Kirk Douglas. Nothing important anyway. Into it. Credit karma. Getting your financial house in order. Changing your paycheck. Just a couple little things. Big thanks to everybody who's left a review of this here show. Going to move over and read a review from Stitcher, the place where I listen. This is from Zandra. Come for financial advice. Stay for mom's cookies. Doug for president 2020. What else do you need to know? There it is. Big thanks to Zandra for- uh, Right in candidate. Right. Big thanks to Zandra for leaving that review. If you can help people know what they're getting into, maybe you'll end up on mom's fridge. Oh, one more thing. If you need good financial planning help in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients. Head to- stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG to interface with his team. All right. That's going to do everything. That's it. We'll see everybody back here on Wednesday. Man, do we have some fun on Wednesday. Heather Chauvin coming by the basement. Can't wait to catch up with Heather. All right, Doug, take it from here. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from our big guest. You work hard and you're worth it. Focus on the big prize and the reward. Second, well, thinking charity begins at home, take a cue from Kirk Douglas. Maybe you can help your community and your family at the same time. But the big lesson, the show is dangerous, kids. Remember to always wear your seatbelt, a helmet, and shoulder pads when listening to podcasts. Wait, wait a minute. Why are you doing this it's part? It's dangerous, kids. Stay back now. What? That's a horrible big lesson. Move, Just move away. Okay, it's your funeral. All right, this is how it's done, pal. God, pay attention. But the big lesson? Who needs a $5 raise and a stuntman? Not this guy. From now on, I'm doing my own stunts. Take that, OG. This guy cannot be bought. Uh, unless you make a 10 bucks. Nine? Nine bucks. Uh, how, how about seven? Se- seven bucks. Give me seven dollars. Seven dollar raise. Yeah, yeah that, that, that'd be good. Okay. Yep. Special thanks to certified financial planner Brian Ursu for joining us. You'll find his book, Now What?, wherever books are sold. You can find more at our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. 
Thanks also to Ryan Falvey for talking us through the Intuit Credit Karma Union. You'll find Ryan helping fintech companies over at finventurestudios.com. This show is created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. One of the best things that ever happened to me in life was getting fired from a job. It just, it changed everything. And I actually knew about three weeks before I got fired that it was probably coming. It was the first time that I started looking at how to do better at my job books. I read a fantastic book about just public relations in the office, started to get interested in Dale Carnegie, realized I wasn't the smartest person in the room all the time, got a little less cocky, kind of... uh, (laughs) Kind of got my act together, still got canned, but that trajectory and that process of getting fired was a great wake up call. That said, as I was flipping through looking for great uh, financial stuff, I came across this BuzzFeed piece written by Andy Golder. Is written a strong word when you talk about BuzzFeed? (laughs) Put together by Andy Golder. That's exactly. Yes. Hodgepodged. Yes. 15 absolutely wild stories about employees who got fired on day one. Don't think we'll go through all 15, but some of these are fantastic. Of course, BuzzFeed just took a Reddit list. This is from Lofi Cuzco asked everybody, what made you fire an employee on the first day? How about these? She said, I know my application said I can work anytime, but really I can't work nights and weekends. She had just been hired to work only nights and weekends. (laughs) So she applied for a job to work nights and weekends. Can't do it. Uh, Number two, she just left. I couldn't find her anywhere. This is on day one. Couldn't find her anywhere. Called her later to parents' house and fired her. Mom was pissed at me. Mom got upset for firing her on her first day because she just decided to walk off the shift and go home. Number three, pub and bar manager here. It was the new guy's first shift. He was constantly on his phone and going for cigarette breaks without permission. Two hours into his shift, his mates came in and he gave them all free drinks, shots, and snacks. And a few of them were under 18. Fired him on the spot and he had the audacity to appeal 
despite overwhelming evidence against him, including five witness statements and CCTV, not to mention the stock deficit. Dude gets a new job at a bar on day one. He's like, hey, I don't plan on keeping this. So why don't you guys come <laughs> I on don't in? plan on keeping it for any length of time. Yeah, maybe everybody's like, hey, l- hey, hey, listen, we got no money. We're not really yeah, sure we'll what to rotate. do. We'll just rotate responsibility. Who's who's got instead of having the person who's the designated driver, right. you've got the guy that's the designated get fire person. Keep. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody takes turns going to get a job at a different bar. Number four, girl snorted in disgust when I asked her to clear a table intersection. Wouldn't be shown how to set a table and snapped at another manager. Do you even want to be here? I asked. Not really. Okay, grab your stuff. Good luck to you. First day. Do you really want to be here? No. Dude shows up in pants so tight you could see his entire stuff. It was a children's bounce play area fun zone. Nice. He's like, wait, this was a different thing than I thought. We told him to go home and change. He came back over an hour later with Starbucks in blindingly white skinny jeans with the same problem. Nice. Parents had complained the first time. This one's good. A guy lied about knowing how to drive a forklift, (laughs) got hired and immediately drove into a support beam. Nice. And then we'll leave on this one. I was assistant manager at Subway. How bad is your life, by the way, when you're getting fired from Subway? I usually like to give people time since taking somebody's livelihood away is not a decision to be made lightly. I like this manager already. But I had one lady who only lasted three hours. She was perfectly fine for the first couple of minutes while the store manager was there. But as soon as my boss left, this lady just flatly ignored me when I asked her to do stuff like prep food or dishes. When we got busy, I stationed her putting vegetables on sandwiches. She said a few things to customers that annoyed me, but nothing too bad at first. Then one guy asked for extra olives. She flat out told him no. He was <laughs> he was a little offended, so he asked again, and she practically shouts, you don't need any more olives. You have plenty. So I tell her to give him the olives he's asking for. Then she turns and she starts shouting to me about Subway standard veggie portions like I was in the one 45 minutes ago who taught her all this stuff. I tried to explain that that's a default amount, but customers can get extra and it isn't any big deal. She wasn't having any of it. So I stepped away from my station, gave the poor guy his olives and apologized. That's when she lost it completely and started screaming that I was undermining her. I told her to go do dishes and I cover her station. She went storming off and left. Uh, By the way, have we played the, uh, I swear to goodness, Every single time we do an after show, it reminds me of a Jim Gaffigan bit. Maybe I know too much, much Jim yeah. Gaffigan. But have you heard Jim Gaffigan talk about Subway? This is Jim on The Tonight Show talking to Jimmy Fallon about it. What's your diet? Well, lately I've been eating a lot of Subway, which is uh, a bit of a disappointment. I don't know if you've been to Subway. You're always like, hey, Subway, eat fresh. And then you bite it and you're like, not fresh. Not <laughs> I think I go to Subway, uh, you know, I go there and not just because, you know, it's fun watching a clinically depressed person throw together your sandwich. Uh, they make it right in front of us. You think they do with a little bit of flair. Yes. Yeah, so- <laughs> I'm so bummed out. You would- 
you want mayonnaise? And you're like, uh, sure. And they're like, <laughs> I feel like I'm at Benihana. <laughs> you know, it's... Not quite that it's special, brutal, no, no, you know. No. But I love all the steps you have to follow. So, the first step is you have to pick out your bread, and by that they mean pick out the color of your bread, because <laughs> it all tastes the same. You know, all the toppings are free at Subway. Free lettuce, no lettuce. <laughs> What's so free napkins? <laughs> I think the toppings are free to distract us from the fact we shouldn't be paying for the meat. Yeah, yeah. That's understood. They yeah. were so stingy with that nasty-ass meat at Subway. <laughs> they was peeling off like it's from a wad of ones or something. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Subway, it was Jim Gaffigan making those jokes, not, not us. Not us. Not us. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.